Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Good evening, brothers and sisters, friends, family, and those uh, joining us on the podcast. Welcome to Christchurch Jerusalem. And this is our evening Bible study uh, where we are wrestling with uh, Moses' teaching in the book of Leviticus. We're up to chapter number nine, and uh, we acknowledge that the Lord is king and his spirit is generously given out to all of all those whom he loves. So his spirit is with us wherever I am and wherever you are. And that actually binds us together as a family, which is actually quite beautiful. And we acknowledge this through adoration and prayer. Uh, so, David Butterfield, would you pray us in? O sovereign Father in heaven, mighty God, O Abba, we thank you for this amazing, amazing privilege you grant us of, of being able to come together in fellowship to hear your amazing word, Father. We ask you, Father, to, uh, to open our hearts, our minds, our spirits to receive your word today, tonight, Lord. And we ask you, Father, to show us how we can use this today and forever, Father. Help us, Father, to assimilate this word and to walk by this word and to do that which is right in your sight. Father, we ask you in, in your amazing, amazing name, Father, to anoint Aaron tonight, Lord, to speak through him, Father. To, so that his words will penetrate our spirits and our souls, Father, that we may be obedient to your word, Father, and to hear truly what you are saying to us in this day and age, Lord, that we may walk in your power according to your spirit, Father, and according to your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. In Jesus' name. Thank you, brother, for that. Okay, as is our tradition, we read uh, the summary from our discussion last week. Now, last week, we did read the rest of chapter 8, and then our discussion was largely based around the sacrificial system, where they came from, what they mean, and how those meanings have been interpreted and changed over time As because uh, uh, we were studying the sacrifices. So what do they actually mean for us? And here's a summary for those that are listening on podcast. I'm sure you can download it from the Internet. The sacrificial system is not an invention of Leviticus or the Torah. Gentiles engaged in the ritual of sacrifice long before there was a nation of Israelites. Sacrifices of animals and grain appear in the Garden of Eden without any precondition or instruction to do so, and even before the permission to consume animals was given. So one assumes, then, that Abel was raising flocks for dairy use only. All the patriarchs, with the exception of Joseph, offer sacrifices and construct altars. In fact, Joseph doesn't actually even hear the voice of heaven. Sacrifices are pre-Torah, and with the exception of Job, who sacrifices for the sins of his children, are not performed in the explicit context of sin. People offer sacrifices. It's got nothing to do with sin. Examples are Noah does not leave the ark and sacrifice for sin, but he simply offers a sacrifice. Abraham does not offer Isaac as a sacrifice for sin. Prior to the tabernacle and the temple, sacrifices were performed in multiple 
locations, not just one. Now, the Israelites had spent over 400 years in Egypt. Much of Egyptian theology revolves around the cult of the afterlife or the obsession with life beyond death. Many of the surrounding nations did practice human sacrifice, presumably out of religious fear and appeasement to angry gods. Now, there is much scholarship linking the influence of pagan sacrifice to Israelite worship. However, I think there is a core difference that is so often overlooked. What do I mean by that? You pick any commentary and they'll all tell you about how pagan uh, sacrifices influenced Israelite worship. Here, I think, is the difference. The worship of God in the Hebrew Bible is the result and conduit to maintain, first and foremost, a relationship. Sacrifice in Hebrew means to draw close to, and Leviticus is a calling into a relationship with a living God who is close, personal, and present. Biblical sacrifices are not for appeasement. They are for atonement. The first sacrifice performed by the people of Israel was the Passover sacrifice in Egypt, which was a blood covering, not for sin, and not in the land of Israel. The prophets railed against an Israelite society that had begun to believe that sacrifices were for appeasing the Almighty, ensuring protection, and enticing his favor and blessing. After the destruction of the temple, and the captivity to Babylon, the theological nature of sacrifice was re-examined. It had to be. Sacrifices were expensive and animals were not always in abundance. Grain, more often than not, was an adequate substitute for blood. Perhaps the blood of animals was not as important as has been presumed. Psalm 141 verse 2 reminded the worshipper that the prayers of the heart were true incense and they raised hands were as sacrifices. Prayers, study, and active faithfulness replaced the importance of sacrifice. So heroes like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego all maintained faith and active prayer lives despite the inability to sacrifice. Now this does not mean that the sacrificial system was without importance or meaning. It had and still has meaning. Theologically, though, the nature of sacrifice became once again part of the relationship, but not the be-all and end-all, nor the end-goal of the relationship. Daniel and Ezekiel prophesied of a return to temple sacrifice, thus giving sacrifices a prophetic aspect. Diaspora theology developed the understanding and the knowledge that sacrifice were not what saved you, nor the nation, from sin or destruction. Cyrus the Persian decreed that Jews could return to Israel and they could rebuild the temple. Yet, the majority of the Jewish people remained in diaspora. If temple sacrifices and the need for blood atonement was paramount, then why did so few people return? Why did the later prophets not decry this transgression 
to the Jews outside the land of Israel? Why does Paul fail to mention the obvious polemic of the need for temple sacrifices with the Greek Jews in the synagogues of Athens and Corinth or Thessaloniki? Babylonian Jewry maintained a firm grip on faith and tradition, ultimately producing a vast body of Jewish literature called the Babylonian Talmud. It is Hasmonean theology, the Maccabees, that introduces the theology of martyrdom, dying for God and the sanctification of the name of God. Late Second Temple period literature shows us that it is the death of the righteous that causes God to act in redemptive ways. Animal blood was much less important than human blood, and the true heroes of the faith were those who died for the Lord. Biblical heroes all died of old age, or in the case of Enoch and Elijah, not at all. However, in the late Second Temple period, it was the blood of the righteous that procured redemption. Jesus understood that the temple was his father's house. He also understood it was his righteous blood that would redeem many. Sacrifices were part of an active relationship and a foreshadow of the things to come. We should, make, we should not make too little nor too less of the ritual of sacrifice. Just as the Torah was the shield and guardian and not the Redeemer itself, sacrifices were part of a heartfelt relationship, but they were not what defined the relationship. We can also note that because sacrifices are in the Torah, every generation has to wrestle with their theological nature. Various forms of Christianity have strong positions on the nature and form of Eucharistic worship. Sacrifice can take spiritual forms as we become active, living sacrifices. And in modern Judaism, some segments still conduct the blood ritual of chicken slaughter on days leading up to Yom Kippur. Also, discussions about rebuilding the third temple continue to surface periodically and with passion. In one form or another, sacrifice continues to remain a segment of much of our theology. Roddy, you have a hand raised. I do. <laughs> I have a question already from after all that and last week and today. Go for it. Are sacrifices and offerings the same thing? Are they mutually exclusive? Are all sacrifices an offering or are all offerings of sacrifice? Or to rephrase it, are they mutually exclusive? Okay, good question. Well, obviously, they're different words. So there is at some segment some uh, a, a different way of, of setting them apart. So I would say that, yes, not all sacrifices are offerings and not all offerings are sacrifices, but they are uh, part of the same system. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I agree. I just want to get this out there because I think it causes confusion if we make those two words equal. I believe they're two different things. Also, was uh, was Jesus an actual sacrifice pursuant to uh, instructions given in the uh, in the Bible? Especially since it wasn't his sin that he died for, right? Well, if 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 people consider that there was no altar, 
um, the rules and regulations pursuant to, uh, to sacrifices for, uh, according to the instructions under the Mosaic Covenant, that none of those were, were applicable. Okay, that's an interesting way of describing it. Remember, Jesus himself does a very interesting midrash when he's having his uh, Passover Seder. Okay, so we're having our Passover Seder. We've got lots of elements to talk about. He meant he takes wine and he says, this is blood, and he takes bread and says, this is my body. What's the one thing he does not draw attention to, which is the most obvious part of a late Second Temple period Jewish Passover? The Lamb. Correct. He mentioned he does not mention the lamb at all. Could easily have said, see this? This is me. Now, theologically, um, the Gospels um, attribute or allude to Jesus being the Passover sacrifice. Great. But John the Baptist says so. He says he's the lamb of God, which is not the lamb that's in Passover. Lamb of God comes from Genesis 22. It's Isaac, right? That's a that sort of idea there. But um uh the because there's no one lamb there's multiple lambs but there's only one isaac so we, you can play with all of those images and they're all kind of true but let's not get too stuck on uh he's definitely this or he's definitely that what jesus does is he does a fantastic midrash where he says there's a new covenant coming which is from jeremiah 31 and in the and and he then turns around and he says but this this covenant is sealed in my blood which is a theology which shows up in the Second Temple period, which is which is following the the Hasmonean and Maccabean uh, theologies, where martyrdom and 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 Kedush Hashem, the sanctification of the name, become quite incredibly paramount. And Jesus does an incredible midrash and says, "New covenant's coming, and it's my blood that is is shed for everybody." But when we read Jeremiah thirty-one, there's no blood as we know it. It's a it's a it's a very beautifully crafted um, piece of Second Temple period theology, which the New Testament is. All right, uh, Janet, you've got a, a hand raise? Yeah, just getting back to that. I think somebody mentioned last week, or whatever, the word covenant always seems to imply blood. I mean, starting with Abraham and uh, God passing through with, you know, with between the two sides there. So. I'm glad you raised that. And we have a covenant without blood. Well, there are two covenants that I'm that I'm still looking for where the blood is. Yeah. No, no I'm serious. Um, the Davidic covenant, the co covenant that God makes with David. Mm, okay. And and the covenant at Shechem, uh, which is in it's in Joshua. Joshua gathers the people of Israel and he makes a covenant. Doesn't kill anything. So. I'm just I'm just looking to see that we we make the statement, you know, uh, as part of our theology. All covenants require blood, and we kind of say that again and again and again. But every now and again, we do have to have a look and double check. If if someone maybe the Davidic covenant does does involve blood. Well, I'm just thinking it involves it involves the bloodline of David. Okay, the bloodline, but but there, there's no shed blood. Yeah, like yeah. God didn't sort of. You know, do like, something. There's no, there's no, I'm making a covenant with you. I'm now I'm ripping this cow apart. Okay. <laughs> no, but it's a covenant of leadership, right? It's a covenant of having a king on a throne and stuff, but it doesn't. Yeah, but we're talking about is blood necessary? Yeah. What I we just want to make sure that we, we, we notice, or what I'm 
postulating is, not I'm postulating, I'm um, advocating, um, is that Jesus does an incredibly wonderful late Second Temple period piece of Jewish theology where we have a new covenant coming and it's the, it's the blood of humans, which are more important than the blood of animals, and the blood of the Messiah has to be even better than that, right? His, his blood is unique. His blood is the best. And he turns around and says, oh, my blood, my blood will actually cover for the sins of many. You just watch. So the other covenants don't involve sin. I mean, uh, the covenant with the, the rainbow and with David, they're not, they're not related to sin. They're not related to that. So I had another question here before. I was just okay. getting off that. I mean, um, two things. I ran across this verse in Proverbs 6.6. 6. Through love and faithfulness, sin is atoned for. I, I haven't looked up the Hebrew because I haven't had a chance. But it'll be it'll be lechaper. Eventually, we will have to have a discussion. Um, the difference between atonement and forgiveness. Yes, and the other thing I had a question about because Stuart and I have been talking. There's a lot of controversy about where the temple actually was. Some say yes, Temple Mount. Some say City of David. But I'm wondering, you know, about the sacrificial system. How evident was it at Shiloh, and how evident was it in um, in uh, the Tabernacle of David? Because there was no temple yet at that point. And Stuart says, "Well, there wasn't a lot of water at Shiloh. They had to cart it in. And yes, there was uh, something down in. But it seemed like the sacrificial system was carrying on when they came into the land. Not carrying on; it was being instituted. The sacrificial system was was all over the place. Yeah." But Aaron, don't you think it was there since Adam and Eve? So when, so technically, blood covered the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? When, when God sacrificed the lamb, technically for their clothing, right? It doesn't say God killed anything. And just because it doesn't see, that's what happened, right? Where they right. got the skin no, no, of no. lamb, but because it doesn't say, don't say that it did happen. No, the, the, the lamb had to die to cover their the skin had to be taken off the animal. I don't think it kept living. The, it doesn't say what animal he used or where he got the skin from. You know, this whole prohibition about, about eating blood and the Jews to this day being very careful about blood. The life is in the blood. So there's something that um, blood is obviously very, very important. And it's still important because the Jews do not like raw meat. Um, they, they, I mean... You know, they're very careful even when you bring the meat home from the market to salt it and let it drip over the sink. So um, this whole aspect of, of blood right from the beginning was, you know, an innocent blood. And God cares a lot about blood. I know. I'm not saying he doesn't. No. No, no, I wouldn't say you were either. But I think you can have a covenant without blood. I agree with you. He's never said you cannot have a covenant without blood. It, it's it, what, what, what's important for all of us to learn is that we say things and we say things sometimes because we read it on the Wikipedia. We say things because we just say things over and over again. And every now and again, you have to double check and you go, oh, because I have to tell you, last week I wrote down in my notes, all covenants are sealed in blood because that was part of our discussion. Well, during the week, I thought, well, I better double check just to double check. And I'm scratching around going, well, there's a, there's a couple that I don't, I don't actually see where the blood is. Now, you might be able to show me where it is and, and we'll go back to the original position, but it, is, it behooves us to make sure 
that we, 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 we say truth. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is not Lord. He is. He's the Lord. So don't, don't try and rest. Um, but we know, Aaron, but Aaron, if I can jump in for one second, we know that even from Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, we know that they knew and they must have obviously discussed it because of the sacrifices that they brought. And obviously God can't hold them accountable for getting it wrong if they didn't know what it was in the first place, right? Like, like how, like, how could that happen? So we know that they clearly knew, and it was part of their culture or their life or their yes, belief or understanding. Right. They it's a mystery. In the first place. Sure, it's a mystery. But Cain knew, and he disobeyed God. It wasn't that yes, he didn't know. Not he saying that he didn't. Not saying right. that he didn't. All of sacrifices there from day one. No. Yes, not saying that he didn't, Sharon. Not at all. Not saying that he didn't. So David or Vida, whoever's got their hand raised. And then, brothers and sisters, we will actually progress with chapter nine. What I what I think is wonderful is can for everyone who's listening out on podcast land, what's incredible is, isn't it interesting when a bunch of Gentiles, I know there's a couple of Jews here, but when a bunch of Gentiles get together and talk about sacrifice, we can't stop. It's in the text. It's unbelievably part of our theology. It's part of even our spiritual DNA. It's it's absolutely incredible. Something that we inherit, and um, and it's and it's it's wonderful that we have to wrestle with these things because it's in the text. But anyway, uh, Vida or David, whoever was up. Two things. The first thing I'd like to uh, mention is that is is the idea of Melchizedek or Mel right? Because you you mentioned the midrash just now, the wine and the bread, right? And the Lord equates the wine to the blood, etc. So, and the word tells us that the Lord Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, right? And now, when we move into all of this, and I would I would suggest that what Lord Jesus is aiming at here is it's not just a new covenant in His blood, but but what Paul says: without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. So, surely this is where we're going, and that is what the new covenant is about. The new covenant can includes forgiveness, yes, and it's wrapped in the blood of the Messiah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Aaron, I, I just one one comment on the on the blood. It's interesting that um, between a husband and a wife, I've mentioned I've mentioned this before, but there is that you know the 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 um, between a husband and a wife at their marriage and the consummation, there's the blood. Kind of interesting as well. Sure. Yeah. Although let's all be one hundred percent honest, it's really hard to find a virgin in our modern day period. Okay, just just letting everybody. Yeah. But yes, one hundred percent understand that. All right, guys, Leviticus nine because that is our uh, the passage set before us, and um, I really like this 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 chapter because it ends with the presence of God. What is all of this sacrifice and atoning and blood and drops and water and clothing and ephods all about? It's about the very real presence of the Lord. There's a really big difference between the, the ritual that we find in the Hebrew Bible and the rituals that we find in pagan culture. So this is not about atonement. This is about relationship. Uh, sorry, not about appeasement. In, in foreign culture, this is about relationship. Okay, so Leviticus 9. Now, <clears throat> if you can, do your best to listen carefully and then ask questions, if you can, on each sentence as to why, where, 
how and who. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he offered a burnt offering, both with, and he uh, both uh, and he said to Aaron, "Sorry, take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, both without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old without blemish for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a peace offering." to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil. For today the Lord will appear to you. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near, and they stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. When Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar, and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So Aaron drew near to the altar. He killed the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him. He dipped his finger in the blood and he put it on the horns of the altar and he poured out the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver and the sin offering he burned on the altar, as the Lord had commanded Moses. The flesh and the skin he burned up with fire outside the camp. And then he killed the burnt offering, and the sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. And they handed the burnt offering to him, piece by piece, and the head which he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs, and he burned them on the burnt offering on the altar. And then he presented the people's offering and he took the goat of the skin offering that was for the people and he killed it and he offered it as a sin offering like the first one and he presented the burnt offering and he offered it according to the rule. And he presented the grain offering, took a handful of it and burnt it on the altar beside the burnt offering of the morning. Then he killed the ox and the ram, the sacrifice of the peace offerings for the people and Aaron's sons handed him the blood, and he threw it against the sides of the altar. But the fat pieces of the ox and the ram and the fat tail and that which covers the entrails and the kidneys and the long lobe of the liver, they put the fat pieces on the breasts, and they burned the fat pieces on the altar. But the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved for a wave offering before the Lord, as Moses had commanded. And then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people, and he blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of the meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and it fell on their faces. This is the word of the Lord. Awesome. Okay, so let's start having a go at the text. So, first sentence, first mishpat. On the eighth day, Aaron, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. Okay, what's so important about the eighth day, brothers and sisters? Go for a Rabbi Mordecai. Also, I attend to my shiurs on Monday, 
knows the answer, but here we go. As all of us know, the seven symbolizes the perfection. And here we go. Seven plus one is like perfection plus one is the eighth day. And we circumcise our kids on the eighth day. And the Hanukkah is eight days long. And we light an eight-branched menorah on Hanukkah. So, and the meaning of eight is high means life. So it has many meanings. So like the most important meaning is that the seven days is perfection and the eight day is like perfection plus one. It's like double perfection. And the integration of this tabernacle took seven, I mean seven days plus one, so eight days. All righty. The day of life. So we've finished our week-long atonement. And what's going to happen today? What's so special about this eighth day? The presence of the Lord. Okay. So the, you have seven days of consecration, and they're all important. They're all really important. And on the eighth day, when you do all this other stuff, and there's this long piece of rit ritual as well, then the, uh, the, the absolute, the real presence of the Lord uh, ends up appearing. And the priestly service begins. So that's the day. We never had a priestly service before. And that very important priestly service that we have been talking for thousands of years had begun on the eighth day. So, okay, does everyone know what, what uh, Mordecai just said? So, with Moses does the first week, he's the one that, that sort of operates as, uh, as the big Kohen uh, for one week. And then when he finishes, he stops and he never does it again, which is interesting. Okay. And uh, Aaron starts the priestly service. He and his sons begin to do um, this thing that we've all been talking about. Okay. And so it's Aaron, uh, his sons, and the elders of Israel. Now, remember, in the last chapter, it was, you know, all the community, all of Israel was there. Well, obviously, not everybody was there. You can't get one million people into that space. And then the text shows up with, well, it's Aaron, his sons, and the elders. Okay, the sort of uh, the heads of the heads of the community. They represent all of Israel. Okay, which shows one responsibility and burden of leadership. Okay, we have to remember that just because you become a leader, you are not only you are incredibly responsible. You have a burden that too many of our leadership do not want to carry. They just want the title and not the actual responsibility. All right, so we gather the elders of Israel and uh, and we start doing. Um, uh, the, the, the actual ritual. And so Moses says to Aaron, take for yourself the bull, sin offering, ram, burnt offering. Those are different offerings. We have uh, noticed from Roddy that there are different names for all of these things. So you can't just say that sacrifice, tithe, we know they're all the same. They're, they are different. Without a blemish, everything has to be perfect. When it is before the Lord, God is perfect. And obviously you're not going to bring into his presence something that's not perfect. Um, unfortunately, too many of us, when we want to serve the Lord, give him our second best, which is not the right thing to do. So which is better, guys, giving away your old pair of jeans to the homeless or buying them a new pair of jeans? New. Correct. Absolutely. Unfortunately, if we're truly honest, most of us give away our old pair because they're old. We say, ah, oh, but yeah, it's, it's going to be important to him. That is not the right intention. <laughs> you know, okay, you only give to the Lord the best. 
only the best. You give ourselves the best. It's only the best that we give to the Lord. And we offer them before the Lord. Okay? Obviously, we are before a living God. Oh, my gosh. Now, when it says Aaron and his sons, how many sons does Aaron have at this time? Anyone? No, no, Teresa has a hand raised, though. Oh, sorry, Teresa. Yes, I I just see that now. That's not about this last question. I was just going to say you can apply the principle of giving your best to when you give food to food banks because the temptation is to give out-of-date food or stuff that you don't want um, as much as clothing that you don't want. And it's quite a challenge, actually, but... um, yeah, in this country, we have a woman who has been for some years now collecting stuff for Syria. And always she says, please, would it, would it be new stuff and not things you're throwing out? And I do think that's an important principle because it's about dignity as well, the, the, the people's dignity. Thank you very much. It's, uh, uh, it's, yeah, thank you for backing that up. I'm going to say it once again because it's important. Give to the Lord unblemished give to the lord the best okay it's 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 and it's the honest heartfelt uh worship so aaron and his sons how many sons is he tracking around with him at the moment four isn't it he's got four yes well done that's right we're going to encounter a couple of them next chapter but he's got four at the moment okay good on him all right and uh and say to the people of israel so now the, um, the elders of Israel will now take upon some responsibility. They will take a male goat for sin offering and a calf and lamb, uh, both a year old, without blemish. Again, something perfect for a burnt offering. There is a difference between the korban chet and the, and the ola. And an ox and a ram for a peace offering. And the peace offerings are in plural. Remember, when making peace with, with uh, the Lord, you're actually also in influencing the world and sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering. There's always grain mixed in there as well, because if we're honest, most of Israel could not afford animals. Most people brought the widow's might. Most people went to the temple being completely unable to produce a sacrifice and and gave what they could, which which was flour, which was acceptable as Jesus also mentioned in the Gospels. And they brought what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting. So we're preparing all of this in in front of the tent. At this time, what's in the tent? Nothing, basically. Correct. That's right. It's got, okay, maybe the ark, okay, but there's no presence as we would know it, okay? Like the second temple, though. Yeah, right, right. And all the congregation drew near, obviously, um, in, the, in terms of the heads of the elders, and they stood before the Lord. Yet. Are we on the, like, verse four or what? Yeah. Uh, five. But we, we five. can do four if you, if you get this. It says, uh, oh, no, wait, you're right. So I've, I've skipped the verse. Uh, and an ox and a ram for the peace offering, sacrifice with the Lord. And today the Lord will appear to you. You missed the most important part. <laughs> I know. I can't believe I missed it. The Lord is going to appear. Unbelievable. He's not yeah. going to appear to you. So. Yeah, not, not to me. All right. So what's the obvious question? How did he appear? <laughs> yes. How? How is the Lord going to appear? Because 
obviously, if the Lord appears in front of people, what's actually physically going to happen? Boom. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'll die. But also, Aaron, why today? Why that moment? That's also a good question. Like out of, out of the last seven days, nothing happened. But today, the eighth day, seven plus one. Okay? Because God is perfect. There you go. Well, and I think it's cool, you guys, that he said this is the method by which you will connect with God. And when you do this, then you will connect. So there was a specific way. It wasn't just sort of, oh, call him up Sunday afternoon, you know? Yeah. But they, the Shekhinah, the divine presence, didn't come immediately. We will see it on the verse 23, that they will have to enter the tent first and do some stuff, which we will be talking about soon. So, yeah. And how did he appear? He appeared through a heavenly fire. Okay. Like the, the fire of the altar. So. Right. So what's the, what's the obvious other question? If the Lord is going to appear, where was he before? Bishamai. Okay, God is everywhere because the whole omnipresent idea, yes. But you've got the God in heaven. Well, what's been guiding the people of Israel through the desert? The cloud, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so you have this incredible mystic uh, uh, way of looking at God. God is in heaven. Absolutely. Well, what's that in front of me then? Stop asking questions. The Lord's going to appear to me. Well, how's he going to do that? He's in heaven and there's something over there. Um, you know, you've got all this, a lot of interesting th ways of viewing the presence of the Lord. Yet you have an incredible promise. Today, the Lord's going to appear to you. Well, wow. God had appeared to Moshe Rabbeinu as a fire. So we shouldn't be surprised that way. Right? <laughs> That's right. The so there's, a, there's definitely a large, a large fire plays an incredibly large, important role in the history of the Jewish people and, of, and in the future and in connection to the Holy Spirit. But You've got this idea. It's incredible. The Lord will appear to you. But where was he before? How's he going to do it uh, now? What's that in front of me? And why is it, what's he doing in heaven? And I'm standing in front of a tent. But what's actually inside? Um, why can't I go in? You know, there's a lots of interesting little things that are going on all at the same time. Yeah, and Aaron, it's interesting because you're, you know, this is a way that God can be visible. Like we're human, right? God is spirit. God is everywhere, right? Those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, the New Testament says. Like, there's a way to worship him that he wants and has prescribed here, obviously, in the Old Testament. But my the thought is like, wow, we need something physical, visible because we're human. Well, it helps. But we can experience him spiritually, right? But the visual. Like, it says also, no man has seen God. So when you've got someone saying God will appear to you, what's the obvious question? How can that possibly happen? Like what exactly am I thinking I'm going to see, right? If, 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 if Jesus himself says, no man has seen God, all right, no man has seen God, well, what are you waiting for to see then? Okay, it's a, there's, some, there's a lot of wonderful mystery that's attached to the Bible, and I think you just need to also just revel in the mystery. Right, but then Jesus said too that when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So then he sure, sure, but, but obviously, what do you what do you think these people think they're going to see? Do you think they're going to see a man? No. When he says you've seen me, you've seen the Father, it's in the in the essence, like in the in the characteristics, uh, you know, as a as a shaliach, like he comes in as in as an essence of his Father. 
Right, but he's also very practical and healing sickness. Every person he touches is healed. Sure, absolutely. Even shadows, okay? Even shadows. But the Lord is going to appear. Let's stick to the text. The Lord is going to appear. How's it going to happen? Okay, two hands raised. I'm going to do uh, Janet and then uh, David. Um, I don't know. Maybe this is just a semantics, but is there a difference between the presence of the Lord and the glory of the Lord? Okay, interesting question. The Lord's going to appear. So we, we have um, what you call theophanies in the. Yeah. But the glory, the Shekhinah is, the Shekhinah is a, I mean, you know, the, the, the Lord, the Lord has appeared. Right. It's, it's, we're going to, we're going to read, we're going to read, I know, the, we're going to read the text that the glory, the kavod, which means honor or weight, as well, heavy. Um, filled the temple. So whatever it is, it fills something. But also it passed by Moshe, remember? Okay. I, I won't, I'll show you my goodness and the glory passes. So it's a good question. Not 100% sure how to answer it other than it's, uh, it's quite mysterious. Marty, what do you think? Because if we have Kavod, then we have Shekhinah. Are yeah, they the same the thing? Shekhinah comes in kavod because we're talking about God. We're not talking about individual guy, you know. Oh, today I'm going to go in glory and tomorrow I'm just going to get an individual guy. He doesn't say that. Whenever he comes, he comes in glory. So that's what I think. So the answer okay. is that there's no difference. Hmm. I mean, that's my opinion. Okay, very nice. Okay, I'm going to write that down. No difference in that. Sometimes there's the heaviness of the presence of the Lord. Other times there's fire or there's... And sometimes he yeah. walks in the garden. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Whenever so, he does I mean, it, he does it in a, some sort of a glory. Mm. And, you know, when, when the angel came to the shepherds and in, in glory, uh, glory shone all around them, was that the glory of the Lord? You know, when, 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 the, when the angel came to the shepherds, they were, they were very afraid because somehow some glory came. And so it wasn't... A, yeah. Remember I mean, the word glory in Hebrew is kavod, which also means weight or heaviness. So the weight of heaven shone around them. What is God heavy in? He's heavy in mercy. He's heavy in goodness. He's heavy in grace. You know, these we often we don't sometimes think of these things as having weight, but with God they do. And they are incredibly heavy. Yeah, has, and speaking has. of which, I would like to say something about the angels, then maybe David wants to say something. You know, when these angels misunderstand or misunderstood their glory, as we see in the book of Ezekiel and book of Yeshua, Isaiah, God kicks them out. So because they are not God. So they have this some sort of glory, but that they are not equal to God's glory. So their glory is a bit lower than God's glory. You know, Satan was a cherubim, like cherub or whatever they call it in English, and he misunderstood what his what he was. Then he was kicked out of you know God's presence. So. Right, her pride, yeah. Uh, Vida, David, one of the butterfields. Aaron, I, if you're okay with me to share a, a shadow type I saw in verse four. Yep. Um, it says here, "For today the Lord will appear to you." And you just explained how um, Moses had been for seven days preparing everything for the for the priestly um, role to start under Aaron on the eighth day. 
And it says here, and today the Lord will appear to you. The same with Lord Jesus' coming, the priestly Moses' law and everything was there behind until Lord Jesus came. For today he came, and now that new priesthood comes again. Cool. Yeah. If that makes That's sense. right, because remember, we're in the order of Melchizedek. Yes. We don't, we don't, we don't replace Levites. That's that's we're not replacement theology. We're order of Melchizedek. And so we see Moses have prepared everything for Lord Jesus' coming. Right. Very good. Uh, Sharon, you have a hand raised. Yeah, so that's what I think it's really cool. Like in verse 6, you know, then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded you to do so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Again, like the prerequisites requiring for you to see the glory of the Lord. And with respect to what you were saying, Janet, um, I don't know if you guys have experienced that, like the presence of the Lord, like in a practical way now in like 2021. So, for example, I was in a prayer meeting one time and like so many people were praying for the healing of this friend of mine, you guys, with cancer. And what happened is I was praying and I felt the presence of God like on my leg. And I don't know if that, you know, you're going to think it's weird, but I mean, I just find, wow. And, and I knew in my soul, in my spirit that she was healed. And we found out the next day that she was healed from her cancer, but it was like tons of people praying. You know what I'm saying? And so have you guys experienced like the presence of the Lord in this day and age? Oh, yes. A lot of us have. What yeah. does it feel like? Absolutely fantastic. Yvonne, you've got a hand raised. I was wondering if you could, I know you started talking about that, how Melchizedek, and then I think you didn't finish the phrase and somebody else ended up speaking, and I was wondering if you could kind of um, maybe just continue that thought process real quick. You said we're from the Order of Melchizedek. The Order of Melchizedek, okay. Um, well, just briefly, um, obviously we have Melchizedek appearing in Genesis. And there's not much said. The words, the order of Melchizedek, occur in Psalm 110. Just one line. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, referring to the Mashiach. Okay? And it's very mystical. It's one sentence. Hebrews picks that up, talking about that he's in the order of Melchizedek. But so do, do the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay? They're not, it's not the only one that, that does. And this is an order that is non-Levitical. They are not Levites or Kohens, they're not trying to replace Levites or Kohens. Yeshua cannot be a Kohen Gadol because he is not of the tribe of Levi, he's the tribe of Judah. And so Hebrews is very clear, he's the high priest in heaven. He's not the high priest on earth because if he's from earth, he's not from the right tribe. That wouldn't make any sense. So you create this nice, uh, very, very um, mystical uh, and mysterious order. And for those that uh, follow traditional churches, they will be, when they are ordained, they will be told that they are not replacing Cohen's and Levites. They are following Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, And hence, when we have communion, we don't do wine bread like Shabbat, as though we're trying to replace the Sabbath. We are not. You do bread and wine because that's what Melchizedek did. And those are, are different, different things. Yeah, they, that's they better comes. not replace us, you know. There you go, because then the Mordecai's out of a job. Better look after these little Mordecai is already out of a job, so don't worry. Double. <laughs> we love you, mate. Good. You're the best Cohen we ever know. All right, uh, Vida or David? Uh, following what you're saying, isn't that also why, why Revelation, etc., will tell us we are called as ki as a kingdom of kings and priests? Yes. Because, because Lord Jesus is a king and priest after the order of Melchizedek, right? So he calls us to be the same, right? Exactly. 
Yeah, just just as he called Israel to be a nation of priests, yeah. we are called just in the, exactly the same vein to be a holy people, a kingdom of priests. Teresa from London. Um, yeah, in the traditional liturgy, the that is that phrase appears, doesn't it? A priest it in does. the order of Melchizedek. Yeah, so it's actually been taken by the traditional churches into the liturgy. Correct. For those that do happen to follow liturgies, old liturgies do include the phrase the order of Melchizedek with a full acknowledgement that uh, the altars of the Lord, which are not owned by the church, they are owned by the Lord, are, are come under that, um, that mystical order, the order of Melchizedek, which is an incredible, uh, it's an incredibly wonderful, beautiful piece of theology for those that want to explore it. Okay. Uh, um, now, where was it? Five. So the Lord's going to appear. Whoa. How's he going to do it? People begin to think, they ponder, they, they wonder, where was he before? Who's this cloud that's been around? Um, and because God had already commanded the people of Israel to build a tent because he wanted to dwell in them, okay? not in it, in them. So there's lots of mystery going on. Verse 5, and they brought what Moses had commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation drew near, good, and they stood before the Lord. Well, how did they do that? Where was the Lord? Obviously, the Lord is in heaven, but at the same time, somehow he's also with them as part of their community. Very interesting. And Moses said, this is the thing that the Lord commanded. All right. It's not in an invention of Moshe. Okay? It's not, this is not Moses' idea. This is the Lord's idea. Nice little proof text for people uh, that you do. And the glory of the Lord will appear to you. So we get a little bit more information, but it's just as mysterious. God is glorious and he is heavy. And he is heavy in all of his attributes. He is heavy in goodness, mercy, peace. He is weighted down by all of these good things. Now read verse 7, nice and, uh, and carefully. Then Moses said to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and bring the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord has commanded. So the Lord says to Moses, draw near. What's the obvious question? Moti, what's the obvious question? Well, I was going to ask the exactly the same question. So <laughs> if anybody has an idea or I can just go ahead and say. What's the question? Okay, so have a look at the text. Moshe turns to Aaron and says, draw near. Mm. So stick your, stick your rabbinical hats on. What's the obvious question? Where was he? Yeah, where was he? Why is he not close? Aaron, Michael Mush says because he was guilty of the, the, the golden calf. Yeah. Plus, he was afraid. That's why he couldn't draw near. Yeah, yeah. Plus, he was very afraid of the Shekinah of the God. So. Yeah. And we will see it on the verse 23 that Moshe will need to push him into the tent of meeting because he was probably shaking. <laughs> so does everybody understand what's going on? Is that, remember, what, what has Aaron done while Moses was up a hill, a mountain? Moses had engaged, uh, Aaron, sorry, had engaged in a, in a complete act of idolatry. He had even proclaimed to the people of Israel, here are your gods which took you out of Egypt. What a load of rubbish. Okay, but he had done it. Now, suddenly, he's in the presence of God. Now, 
if you were, if you knew that God was in your room, what would you do? Down on my knees. <laughs> yes, exactly. yes, we would. Teresa, we would be on our knees going, okay, suddenly I'm intensely aware of my sin. Yes. Suddenly I'm intensely aware of how unholy I am. Somehow I'm intensely aware of all of my history all rolled up, sitting in front of me, and it's like, excuse me, is it okay if I crawl out of the room and you don't notice I'm here? Now, there's this segment of Aaron who's engaged in idolatry, He's intensely nervous. Uh, what have I done? I'm going to stand in front of God. This is not good. And, and, and what does Moshe say? Come near. Yeah. Now, isn't that a beautiful thought? And what did Aaron say? How did he start the conversation? He would probably say, oh, what a nice day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Honestly, Talmud and the rabbinic uh, liturgy says that he was super afraid. Aaron, for some reason, was super afraid that Moshe had to encourage him to say, yeah, come here, nothing to, afraid, to be afraid of, you know, just come by. Today is your day. That's why God had chosen you. You have to do your duty. I cannot continue to be the priest. You are the priest. I'm not. Yeah. So, yeah. It's an affirmation. It's actually a, a, a sign of forgiveness and reconciliation. And uh, even sin, God can deal with all types of sin. Even as a sinner, you can still come close to God. Now, isn't that interesting? Yes, you can make atonement. I don't know if Motti knows of this. I think he, well, obviously he must do. But in my homage, I didn't mention it when, you, when we were right at the beginning, but it picks up the very first verb at the beginning of chapter nine. It was, it says, I think, vayahi, and it says that's significant. The sages teach that that word is off, often indicates um, grief. Grief and uh, so what grief, what sadness would be associated with this narrative? And then it says, well, it was the first of Nissan and it was the, the golden car. So it mentions that, that that is an indicator. I don't know what Motti thinks of that. Yeah. So there is a link. It's like right a message from, from God. You know, he's yeah. just showing who the real boss is on the mm -hmm. exact same day. So, mm. yeah, I'm not sure if Aaron remembered it or not. They probably remembered because they didn't have calendars. They didn't have iPhones. Oh, today is the Golden Cafe. Let's celebrate the golden <laughs> anniversary. He didn't have an iPhone. Maybe, I don't know. You know, I don't think he remembered it. Well, let's see. Yeah. So Aaron's feeling a little bit potentially quite uh, guilty. And Moses says, come on, Aaron, let's, let's get close. And uh, God has a way for you to serve. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to make atonement, covering, yeah? and for yourself, and then for the people, and then for the people. So there's two times it says for the people. Well, is that important, do you think? Right. They didn't have to bring their own, right? Okay, true. The people didn't bring their own. Yeah, a sacrifice was done on their behalf, which is always theologically wonderful that someone can die on your behalf. That's nice. But isn't that interesting? Draw near, make atonement for yourself and for the people, and bring the offering for the people and make atonement for them. So there's a double uh, thing of the people. Any ideas why there might be a hint to a, uh, a two times set of atonement? What you got, David? Aaron, I'm, I'm curious about that verse because it says once make atonement for yourself and the people, then he says make an offering. Now, can, do we equate atonement and offering the same thing here? 
That's a good question because it says make atonement for yourself, bring an offering and make atonement. So there are some offerings that cause atonement. There are some offerings that don't. But there's definitely this, this double emphasis on the people. And you often see this hinted in Hebrew that there's this, there's this uh, second time something happens. And, uh, and obviously that leads into the, the advents of Messiah that you have two comings of the Messiah, Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach ben David. You have two types of atonements. You have two types of visitations. You have this, this constant, uh, uh, this, uh, the, the Lord will go out with weeping, but then he'll come back with joy, right? There's this, there's this in, in Psalm 126. Yes, can it also be the idea of a double witness, two witnesses? Could be, yes, it's absolutely that there as well. Within any of this, within any of this mystery, you have multiple levels of reading, and it could be this, um, this, this idea of two witnesses as well. So there's, there's, a, there's a lot there that uh, shows up in, um, within the text. So Aaron drew near to the altar. So that's a nice thought. He, he, he listened to his brother despite all of his guilt and all of his shame. He partakes, he does his job. So brothers and sisters, no matter how much we've fallen, no matter what we've done, even if we've engaged in idolatry, okay, we can still uh, repent and go about the work of the king, which is a nice thought. And, uh, and so the sons of Aaron presented the blood to him, and so there's his, his, um, his family is involved. And then you get the, the function of dipping, dipping blood, putting it on the horns of the altar, and the way he dresses uh, the, the animal and then he burns the skin on the outside of the camp, does everything that, he is, is, uh, that uh, God has instructed Moses to tell Aaron what to do. In verse 12, he kills the burnt offering after the sin offering and they hand him the blood again and he, he partakes of the ritual of, of, of where he puts the blood. And, um, and then the, he takes various pieces of the animal and he burns them all on the altar. And then in verse 14, you end up with this another interesting phrase. He washes the entrails and the legs and burns them with the burnt offering. Okay? Now, all of a sudden, okay, we have to n- nominate a particular piece of the animal, okay? um, the, uh, the raglaim, the legs, which is also in Hebrew. The word for feet. It's not a feet. I look at, look at it. So it's a knee. So like basically not a feet. Sorry. There's a mistranslation there. I was looking for that in the Midrash. And it's actually the Hebrew word is not the. Oh, is it bracha? Uh, let me see it. Is the same knee. The knee is the same word as blessing. One second. I'm looking at it right now. It's actually keraim. Something like that. Oh, kraim. Yeah. yeah, that's what we use when we say uh, we want leg and thighs from chicken in, in modern Hebrew. When you, when you go to the supermarket, if you want leg and thighs, you say the word kraim. Yeah. So he washes that, okay, which is an interesting part of the animal, out of all the animal that you want to you wash. And um, it's attached, obviously, to the leg, hence the English translation. They use the word uh, uh, leg. Um, and then they burn them up. So what other indications have we got of, of, of leg washing and foot washing? 
Yeah, sure. Wash yeah, of food. course. And uh, which is an interesting thing that when you're preparing a sacrifice, for some reason, and the text does not say why you got to wash this bit. I mean, obviously, there's other parts of the animal which might be dirty. Um, I can think of other bits which will not be named on this channel. Um, but we are going to wash this bit. Is it the same Hebrew word for um, Jacob's thigh? Okay, let me check. That was, you know, struck by the Lord. Okay, I will have a look. I don't think so, yeah. I'm not, I'm not 100% sure, but um, I will double check but, um, uh, to, to see what, what that is. All right, so uh, verse 15, then he presents the people's offering. So this is offering on behalf of the people. The priest is acting in, on behalf of the entire community, even if they're not paying any attention. And uh, he takes the goat uh, sin offering, kills it, and he does what he's got to do for like all the others. Uh, and he presents the burnt offering and he offers it according to the rule. So, so Aaron is following the instructions. Okay? He's not, not uh, making stuff up. He's doing the ritual as it has been told to him from the Lord. So obedience, even if he doesn't understand why. Understanding why is actually less important. Okay? And he presents the grain offering. So grains involved as well. And uh, the grain is always mixed in with the animal when it's built, burnt. Then he kills the ox and the ram and the sacrifice of the peace offering. So peace is also in plural and has multiple levels of meaning. We've discussed that in the past. And again, we get the blood, do, do all the stuff that uh, Aaron and his sons, it's a whole family affair. And uh, then they deliver up the fat. Fat is important to the Lord. Blood and fat belong to the Lord. They don't belong to anybody else. Uh, verse 20, they put the fat pieces on the breasts, burn the fat pieces on the altar, but the breasts and the right thigh, there's the word that you were looking for, I think, the right thigh, okay, that Aaron waves. It's a wave offering. That part of the animal is separated and then, and then used in, an, in another separate ritual before the Lord. Okay. Um, and exactly why, I'm going to admit that I don't know. There's something about it. I do remember a, when I was studying Hebrew at Hebrew University, we had a secular kibbutznik try and tell us why certain parts of the animal, like the thigh, Jews don't eat. And it had to do with this story with Jacob and wrestling. And I asked her, so why? Like, no, really, really, really tell me the, the reason why. And, and they couldn't do it. Okay? There's, there's, there's something that just the text has a story, which we know of God touching Jacob's thigh and why he then begins to limp. I don't think any of us will know. We have all kinds of reasons. Commentaries are full of all kinds of really cool reasons why, why commentators think that happened. Um, uh, but I, your guess is going to be as good as mine. Okay? Um, but again, we see it here, so it's got to have some sort of importance, and I'll continue to research it, and maybe we'll all come up with an idea. Um, uh, but we, we do this, waving it before the Lord. Now, the good bit's coming, okay? The last couple of verses, this is the really good bit. Out of all of this ritual, we get to the high point, the whole purpose. Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people, and he blesses them. Now, when we say the word blessing, I'm going to give you my blessing, most of our current culture would be like, 
uh, I'd rather have your credit card or the keys to the car. Okay? Or please put me in your will so that when you die I can have stuff. We, see, we have lost the value of a blessing. But if someone said the Lord is going to bless you, if God was going to bless you, we would all say, oh, absolutely. Oh, my gosh, God's going to bless me. Yeah, something, something's going to happen. It's going to be fantastic. But if a human does it, eh, not so much. Somewhere along the line, brothers and sisters, we've lost the value of a blessing and the power of a blessing. And so here we have, we have this incredible ritual. On the eighth day, Lord's going to come. Aaron lifts up his hand. Aaron, who has done interesting things. Moses has done interesting things. Let's remember Moses' first start out in a career was murder. Let's kill an Egyptian and bury him. That sounds like fun. Yeah, I'm a real hero for the Lord. What a good beginning, huh? What an incredible beginning, yes. Okay, redemption can cover a multitude of sins, right? Mercy triumphs over judgment. So Moses loves his hands and he blesses the people. This is real. This is real. Blessings are something that are absolutely real and vital. And we know what he said in that blessing, right? We will see it in later on chapter. Go right ahead. What did he say, brother? Maybe you said you are an Aaron. I'm not an Aaron. <laughs> okay. Well, how did he do it? What, what, how, what, what sort of symbols would he have used? Does anyone, anyone know? Most of us know. Yep. That's right. Got the... The, around the, the hands up. What is the blessing? Where is the blessing? Marty, what, what is it? Moti, they want to hear you give a blessing. Well, it's not a proper time. Maybe you give it in the year. All right, we'll do it at the end. Okay. Okay, we'll do it at the end. That's a proper time. Okay, and he came down. Where did he come down from, right? The altar, sacrificing. Correct. So, so physically, comes down from the altar. Spiritually, where did he come down from? Meeting with the Lord. Absolutely. So, you know, you've got this, whenever you see these words in Hebrew, like they say, who you read, he went down, or who Allah, he went up. They don't just mean physically. They do mean physically, but they also mean that he's spiritually. He'd been in the presence of the Lord. He comes down and says, I've got something to give you people. And he uh, then shares that with, with, the, with the family. Uh, And he come down from his offerings, various things that he had done, sin, burnt offering, peace offerings. And then it says something interesting, okay? So we've just come down from this incredible mountaintop experience. We have blessed the people. And it says, and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. Yeah, why? That's a good question. Why they go there? Then the Shekhinah comes. So what is the connection? I have no idea. You see on the verse 23. And the glory of Hashem appeared to the entire people, but it didn't appear to people before they entered the tent. So why, any, any ideas, guys? Why do you think they needed to enter the tent of meeting? I mean, it, it, the text doesn't say, but it's an interesting question, incredibly interesting question when you think about it. Maybe, maybe it's, it's something to do with holiness. Okay. Because just before the Lord's going to appear with his glory, of course they're going to give the blessing, and then the Lord's going to shine on them, right? To come into his house the tabernacle to be inside of the house well they're in the they're within the, the the courts of the tent of meeting right and now they go inside uh moti you were going to say something yes because the shekinah didn't come so they entered the ta- uh, the the tabernacle to ask mercy because aaron thought oh there should be something wrong right he's not coming you know we're just calling him praying Dancing, blessing, but he's not coming. 
So he noticed that and he told Moshe. So this time he encouraged Moshe to enter the temple, uh, the tabernacle. Then they did some this like incense offering, blah, blah. They asked for mercy. Aaron most likely repented once again. Then God Almighty forgave him once again. So he came down from him. Interesting, because they go into the tent of meeting and they come out and bless the people again. So the people get blessed twice. I mean, the people are going, this is pretty awesome. You know, we're getting like this. the COVID vaccine, you know, four dose. Four doses. That's right. They keep going. <laughs> the first one didn't work, guys. Sorry. Let's do it in mind. <laughs> yeah. But the people just, all they're getting, they're just, oh, we're getting another blessing. This is pretty good. But they're in within, when, when you have question, when you have instances of the text where, Something happens, you don't know why. That's when you, uh, uh, a lot of the Jewish midrashim and the rabbinical commentaries leap in. They go, what's going on? Why do we go into the tent of meeting? What's so important? Why, when we come out, do they have a blessing? And then the glory of the Lord. So, again, two blessings, two times of atonement. There's lots of twos uh, that are in there. Okay. And... Um, and they are the, the glory of the Lord appears to who? Entire people. So what would be the obvious question? How? The Lord appears to all the people. Well, obviously, on when we when we read all, we don't always mean all, but sometimes we like to think all. But so how does he appear to all? Let's go for it. How does the Lord now appear to all the people? All millions. Ish, ish, ish. Fire, fire. Fire. <laughs> Yeah. So how do all the people now witness this? And so we've got the presence of the Lord, the Shekhinah, or the glory of the Lord, however you want to say it. The Lord is now present with his people. The end result of all of this ritual is intense, close relationship, which is the presence of the Lord. Why did we construct this tabernacle in the first place? So that we could have the Lord in our midst. So, Ivan, Brazil? Yeah, it just, it just reminded me when Mighty said, you know, when they went in to the courtyard and then they had to dance and this and that, and you finally had, they had to go in and, and the Lord came down. It just reminds me of Elijah. When he prayed immediately, the Lord came down in, in ash and fire. And then, of course, you've got the prophets of Baal. They're, like, dancing and, and invoking and then cutting themselves. And so with Elijah, he came down straight first time. Prayer. Okay, but here it takes it takes something else. It takes going into the tent of meeting. Yeah, right? and uh, so there was this little encounter we have with uh, Moshe and Aaron, and uh, they go into the tent. They come out. They bless the people, and it says they blessed. So again, it's it's they're doing because because remember Moshe is also from the tribe of Levi. He's a Kohen, so he's allowed to do this rabbinic blessing as well. The glory of the Lord appears to the people and then fire. Okay, so part of God's aspect is you end up with this fire that comes out from before the Lord. So it's a part of him. It's connected to him. It is him. There's all of those things all in one. And what does it do? It burns. It burns the offering. It starts the eternal flame. So remember, what was one of the priests' job that they had to make sure that they always did? They had to attend the altar. They had to make sure that the fire was perpetually burning. But who started the fire? God himself. Yeah. Correct. God starts the fire himself, and then humans continue the work. 
God pours out his spirit, we continue the work. God starts salvation, we continue the work. We are active participants. We're not passive watchers. We're active participants in the field. He's our shepherd. We, yes. Hey, Aaron, when yeah. we started the fire in the tabernacle, did that, like when every time they went around, every stop, so they kept having to nurture that fire, that initial fire, so that it wouldn't go out? So how would they take that fire? How would they transport that? I honestly don't know how they did it. I'm sure there's probably... Um, uh, some Talmudic descriptions about how they transported the fire. We can show some pictures next week. Okay, yes, we can show perhaps some pictures about how we th how we think that they that they sort of kept uh, the fire burning, and because um, obviously it was incredibly important to them. If God had started something, and you had physically seen God start this, right, and then you had a commandment from somebody, now don't let that go out. What would you not do ever? Let it go. Exactly. You would ne never let that thing go out, okay? You would figure out how uh, to burn stuff, you know. Um, uh, it just, it, it, it's, so they, so they part, obviously the initial people who saw it would be incredibly passionate and zealous to make sure the fire go out. In verse 23, it says, and um, they came out and blessed the people. Aaron, Aaron first blessed the people. And then is it Moses and Aaron doing the blessing the next time? Yeah, together. Correct. Thank you. So something happened inside the tent. They had a little conversation and negotiation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because Aaron, I was going to ask Modi, it'd be nice to see some video of that. I was thinking about that when we read that verse about this priest is waving around the breasts and the right thigh before. A video? It would have been nice to see. Do you guys have that on video? Like, do you have I have to build an altar first as a Kohen, then we can record a video no, for you. There's no picture of it. <laughs> I need to buy gasoline, but it's super expensive, you know? No, but like there's cartoon pictures of it or something? Like, you know, like when you were learning. I, I will draw something for you. I will, I will do that for you, Sharon. <laughs> Sharon, there you go. The Kohen's going to do something. Be careful. <laughs> careful. God might come in fire too, you know? We don't want to burn. <laughs> Just yep. kidding, sorry. The presence of the Lord also includes fire. Obviously, we see that on, on um, Pentecost as well. But And you see it also in the Midrashim from when God came down on Mount, Mount Sinai. Fire is a very present uh, aspect. When God speaks, his word itself is fire. Uh, various angels are also on fire. Uh, there's all kinds of different uh, uh, aspects of, of divine fire. And um, in this case, it also is part of the worship. God himself is involved in worship, so he's not aloof from the people. He actually consumes what the people have brought him. He doesn't just look at it and go, oh, that's lovely. Thanks for that. Now I'll just let it rot on the altar. No, it's, uh, there's a, God is deeply involved in the work that we give him. When you right when when we you know he is when when we're sharing the gospel when we're uh, loving our brothers and sisters when we're actively involved in the work of the kingdom of heaven, God's involved as well. God's empowering it even. He's, he's empowering it, but he's using it. He's taking it. He's he's in, embracing it. He's not aloof from the the thing. He's not aloof from from the from the worship. He's deeply involved, and uh, of course. When you actually see God move in your life, what was the result of the people when they see it? 
worship. Correct. Yeah. They, they worship, which is what you see all the way through through um, the Bible, the worship and adoration of the Lord. Even Revelation is a giant book on worship uh, for those that are studying that, uh, that book. All right. So great. Any other questions that we have? Excellent. The end result of all of this ritual was the divine presence of the Lord. And uh, he was actively involved living with his people, wanting to bless his people. It involves blessing. The presence of the Lord is a blessing. And it's, uh, and it's actively partaking within, within, the, within, within the sacrificial system. The sacrifice meant to draw close or to become close to. God indeed does that. And then he calls people into uh, his service. Excellent. All righty. So. We will continue. Chapter 10 is, uh, after all this wonderful presence of the Lord, the Lord is present. Let's have a horrible story. Okay. So <laughs> 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 let's, let's, let's teach ourselves what not to do in the presence of the Lord. Okay. And, um, and so we begin, unfortunately, with uh, uh, Nadav and Avihu. Okay. So... Blessing, blessing. Okay, let's give the let's give a blessing. Okay. Do you want to do it together? Cute. Moshe and Aaron, huh? Who's the Moshe? Who's Moshe, Aaron? Aaron? Modi, Moshe, Modi, same thing. <laughs> yeah, let's do in English. Yeah, yeah, the Lord, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his face, his countenance towards you, and in so doing, may he bring you peace. Amen. Let's hear it in Hebrew. Much do in Hebrew. Yes, please. Bevrit and Bevrit. One second. I, will, I, I have it in my mind, but I, I always like to read it from the book in order not to make any mistakes. So one second. All right. Yevarecha Adonai Verismerecha Yaer Adonai Panavelecha Vehunecha Isa Adonai Panavelecha Vayasemlecha Shalom. Shalom. Amen. And it's in the singular. It's a it's a personal blessing. It's for all the people, but it's personal. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King.